Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. Hello, welcome. This week, we have a nautical theme, an aquatic murder mystery. Sea urchins are being killed off by a sinister, unidentified microscopic organism. They hitched a ride from a faraway place and are taking a toll on the spine-covered animals. Scientists believe it was a pathogen that came through the Panama Canal, mm. uh, but it wiped out like 95 or more percent of the urchins throughout Florida and the, and the Caribbean. So it's not just here that we saw this problem. Our marine sleuth, Erica Delgado, solves the case. Coral reefs are also hard hit by disease, but not so modern medicine is stepping in to help. A mysterious disease is making coral sick just off the coast of Florida. Can a simple drug that's been around for decades help save them? Dr. Vivian Gonzalez brings us the helping dose. Also a year ago this week, a gargantuan dust storm came out of Africa and reached as far west as the Gulf of Mexico. It was nicknamed Godzilla. I'll take you back in time to see what factors led to this huge dust storm and look at the chance that it may happen again. But we begin our marine-themed podcast with meteorologist Vivian Gonzalez, who has this week's seven questions on a possible cure to a disease taking a toll on our corals. The Seven Weather Team has launched the Weather or Not podcast, which we're really excited about to be able to talk about anything science-related and, at times, tie in how weather plays a role. And today we get to talk about sick corals, bringing in an expert like Dr. Karen Neely to shed some light in our Seven Questions feature. Dr. Karen Neely is a research scientist for Nova Southeastern University and based out of the Florida Keys. Her focus is on intervention strategies, including application and treatment to infected wild corals and pillar corals, including coordinating coral rescue and spawning projects for the species. Thank you so much for joining us, Karen. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Um, sure. Uh, so I'm Karen Neely. I am a research scientist with Nova Southeastern University, um, but I'm based out of the lower Florida Keys on Big Pine. Um, and my team and I have been working with stony coral tissue loss disease and corals in the Florida Keys and trying to uh, address this, this tragedy that's happening out on the reefs and, and find some solutions for it. Um, so what we originally sort of thought might, might just be a, a sort of minor disease outbreak has actually turned into really a region-wide, Caribbean-wide problem that is uh, of major concern and, and that a lot of people are working on. One. Now, when I think of corals, uh, I think of when I'm on vacation or on a cruise going snorkeling and I get to see these beautiful, colorful corals under the sea. And I'm just having a difficult time wrapping the idea around my head that a disease is actually making them sick just off of our Florida coast. So just how close are the sick coral to us and how much of it is being impacted? Yeah, uh, it's very close to us. Um, and a lot of people don't even realize that, that coral is alive, um, that it is uh, an animal. It's sort of best to think of coral as a, a bunch of jellyfish that are just glued upside down onto rocks. They act the same as jellyfish in terms of catching food and reproducing. Um, so they are animals, um, not just big pretty rocks out there. Um, but they are 
very close to us. Um, it is sometimes easy to think of them as part of Australia or or part of Bali or somewhere very exotic, but they're really a part of our landscape here as well. Um, in the Florida Keys, the, the reef tract is a few miles offshore, um, but here in Monroe County, we have corals, uh, you know, within 100 feet of our shoreline and particularly in sort of Miami Broward, the reef tract lies very close to the shoreline. Um, and that, that first reef tract can be just a couple of hundred feet off the shore. Two. So with the coral getting sick, how is this going to affect us? Yeah, so reefs are so foundational to sort of our South Florida lifestyle. Um, and, and corals themselves are the building blocks for those reefs. Without those corals, we don't have all the ecosystem services that they provide. Um, so here in South Florida, we have about 6 million residents. There's about 38 million people that visit us every year. And a lot of that is a tourism-based economy that relies on people wanting to go fishing or scuba diving or you know just be out on, on boats enjoying our natural okay. beauty. Um, and so that, that recreational economy is, is super important. Um, over a billion dollars in income and about $3 billion in sales can be directly attributed to our coral reefs. Uh, over 50% of NOAA federally managed fish species rely on coral reefs during their life cycle. Um, and then uh, the, just the shoreline protection, I think, is a huge component that reefs provide for us. Uh, we know that reefs knock down wave energy, particularly during major events like hurricanes, and prevent those big waves from hitting our very low-lying shorelines. So really without these reefs, our lives here in South Florida would be vastly different. And that's very interesting information. So there's where weather ties into, um, you know, what's what could possibly impact a coral reef ecosystem. Three. What is causing this tissue eating disease and how is it spreading? Yeah, those are both really good questions. They're still under a lot of research. Um, it is notoriously difficult to identify coral disease pathogens. So what is it that's actually causing that disease? And there's a lot of great researchers that are working on that question right now, um, but it, it hasn't been identified yet. Um, we do have a better answer in terms of how it's spreading. Uh, there have been some cool experimental works that have been done by a lot of our, our colleagues and collaborators, collaborators um, showing that uh, corals, touching corals can cause transmission, um, but also just water movement can, can cause transmission. Um, so you think about a lot with, with human diseases. You might be really close to another person that's sick and you're probably gonna get sick, but uh, there's a lot of other ways that it can spread too through the air or through contaminated surfaces. And, and that's really the case with these corals as well. So the, the major working theory right now is that it has spread throughout Florida through water currents, um, but we also know that it's spreading throughout other parts of the Caribbean. And uh, a lot of those areas where it started in other parts of the Caribbean have been around shipping ports. So there's a, um, some anecdotal evidence that, that shipping or movement of water from a contaminated area to a clean area is leading to this spread as well. Four. Does it affect specific coral or the general population of coral? And how do you prioritize which coral to treat first? Yeah, uh, two good questions there. So the there's about 45 coral species in Florida, um, and this impacts more than half of them. Um, and most of those are what we call the major reef building species. So the, the big boulder corals and the big brain corals that contribute a lot to the building of the reef, those are all heavily impacted. 
Um, so it's it's not just confined to one or two species, uh, as some of the diseases of the past have been. That's one of the scary parts of this disease is how uh, how wide it's um, how many species it can impact. Um, so yeah, then when we move into different coral treatments, uh, there's a lot that goes into prioritizing this. This this really is like triage. Um, you know, we're thinking about which corals have a chance of making it if we help them which ones are gonna be fine even if we do nothing um, and which ones are we gonna lose no matter how much effort we put into them. And, and that's a really challenging decision to make out on the reef. Um, so we have worked with a lot of the managers throughout uh, Florida to assess, well, what makes a high value site and what makes a high value coral? Um, and some of the factors that go into that are things like, how big is the coral? Um, larger corals have more reproductive potential um, they've been around a lot longer. They're the ones that have survived for thousands of years, sometimes of, of different stress. So they're probably pretty likely to survive into the future as well. Um, so we look at size, we look at uh, how much tissue is there on this coral. Uh, unfortunately, one of the, the big criteria that goes into this is how much time is it gonna take me to work on this one coral and save it? Would I be better spent using that time on four other corals? Um, we think about the different species, whether they're likely to reproduce because there's other species, uh, there's other individuals around them. Um, so there's really a lot that goes into it. Um, and we've been really lucky to, to work with our managers and get their input on, on what makes priority sites and priority corals to help achieve those ecosystem goals. Five. Now, what techniques have been used to treat the infected coral? So in the early days, we were trying a lot of stuff. Um, people would sort of throw out random ideas and, and we would give that a shot because we, without knowing what the pathogen was, and there's really not much history of, of working with coral diseases in terms of trying to treat them in the past. Um, and so uh, our colleagues in Mexico really took a lot of lead on working with some natural products. So uh, honey and tea and um, sort of a lot of these more natural remedies that have been uh, tried and, and successful with humans were tried on these corals. Um, unfortunately, none of those were successful. Um, here in Florida, two of the main trials that were conducted in the field were a chlorinated epoxy. So mixing um, uh, like a, a pool chlorinator, just the, the powder that you use to shock your pool. Mm -hmm. uh, that in with a two-part epoxy and applied that to the the disease lesions along with a, a trench like a fire break um, to try to cut off the transmission between uh, a diseased area and the remaining healthy area. Um, unfortunately none of that was successful either and then this product uh, this antibiotic paste um, that was de developed in collaboration uh, with some of our, our fantastic colleagues um, was used as sort of a topical applicant. I think of it a lot as like a neosporin that you just rub on an infected cut. That's pretty much what we're doing. And, and unfortunately, that's the only thing that's been successful to date. Um, we do have some colleagues at the Smithsonian who are working on some probiotic development that may have some promise. So we're still looking at other alternatives, but really to date, we only have the one option. Six. So it does seem like an antibiotic. What, what type of antibiotic is it? It's amoxicillin. Amoxicillin. It does seem like it's helping to save the sick coral. So just like any other treatment or course of antibiotics, is one course enough? 
So one of the really neat things that our collaborators were able to develop was a, a time release paste. Um, so I, I'm going to give a shout out here to the, the Ocean Alchemist group, of course. which are the people who developed this. Um, they have way better chemistry knowledge than I do and, and knew exactly which components to put into this paste. But one of the important factors was to create this time release um, so that it was getting like a, a dosage of antibiotics over three days. Seven. Can coral build like resistance to antibiotics? We don't know. Um, there are, of, of course, some concerns about using antibiotics, and those are uh, constantly being considered. The amount that we're putting out there is really quite small, um, and it is very topical and localized to the disease lesions. Um, so we're not really worried about any sort of widespread ecosystem effects. Um, but there are concerns as to how this might be impacting the coral itself. Um, I believe there's some projects that are probably coming up in the next year that will look at things like antibiotic resistance in these individuals. We thank you so much for your efforts and collaboration and giving us a, a better understanding on how this disease works and, and tracking it and for what's being done to slow the spread, really. I, I do believe the community should be aware that a healthy coral reef ecosystem is just vital and that this information is just really valuable. Maybe we can have you back in a future segment to tie in the weather aspect and how it impacts our coral reefs a little bit later on. Yeah, I'd be delighted to do that. I, I agree wholeheartedly. This is such an important part of our South Florida life and it's really under siege right now and, and we're excited to be doing something about it, but it's something that people need to know about and, and something that we're always happy to talk about. And thank you so much, Dr. Neely. I hope to talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the seven weather team once again to do what we do best, keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the storm station, 7 News. Corals are not the only ones dealing with health issues. Sea urchins were almost exterminated back in the 80s by a virus-like bug. Meteorologist Erica Delgado dives into the subject. Sea urchins, one of the ocean's tiny, round, and spiny animals that live on the seabed anywhere from zero depth to the deepest trenches in the ocean and are unfamiliar to most who don't spend time underwater exploring sea creatures. And because of their unfamiliarity to many of us, most would not know that the sea urchins we know of here in Florida were wiped out of the Caribbean in the 1980s and have not yet fully recovered. Thankfully, the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science here in South Florida has launched a coral reef restoration project that is determined to help restore the sea urchin population in our oceans. And I had the privilege to speak to conservation programs manager, Shannon Jones, who is one of the many dedicated hands on deck of the sea urchin restoration mission at the Frost Science Museum. Here's what she had to say. Thank you so much for doing this. Tell us a little bit about the sea urchins and, and their importance to, to our ecosystem. Sea urchins, I think are one of the People don't really like think about sea urchins when they think of coral restoration. And I personally did. I mean, I've been in marine conservation for 
really long time and I've always loved the ocean and I never really cared about sea urchins until this project. So what's really special about sea urchins and specifically these long spine sea urchins or diadema that we have been working with are that they are really good grazers. So they eat the algae that you find all over, you know, corals and all over the ocean and they clear the space so that corals can settle and continue to to grow and not get suffocated um, or smothered by some of this algae that might outcompete it. So pretty much they clean up their little vacuums and they need this algae to survive and corals need the clean space. So it works out well. Part of this restoration project may not just be the sea urchins or the didema, it's also other sea life in the water. Yeah, so we have, we're partners in a program called the Southeast Florida Coral Reef Restoration Hub. Uh, and it's a bunch of different really great organizations, universities that are working together for this common goal of restoring uh, Florida's coral reefs. And so we each have a really nice niche that we fill in. And so it kind of started with the University of Miami. They have this awesome program um, called the Rescue Reef Program, and they bring out volunteers uh, and citizen scientists to outplant corals. Specifically, uh, they started with staghorn coral, so one species. And then as they learned and grew, they started adding different species of um, coral. And then we started looking at a holistic approach of where now we're doing great work with coral. We want to keep that up and going, but what else needs to be out there to help you know, these reefs thrive, that we need a biodiverse, balanced ecosystem. And that's where urchins came into the picture. And I also read that part of the research mission is the 100 Yards of Hope. Where did that come into play? Like, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, 100 Yards of Hope has like, this really special spot in my heart. <laughs> so there is a reef site called Rainbow Reef. It's right off of Key Biscayne. And at the far, farthest buoy, I think it's South Six, I think, that's where it started, but it's grown bigger than that. You know, last year or two years ago, I guess at this point, the Super Bowl was in Miami. And each year there's an NFL green. They come into the city that football or Super Bowl is in and they want to give back to the community and specifically the environment. And a lot of times in the past, they did planting events and they did, you know, trees and grasses and restoration like that. But you know, they came here and were like, well, we have this really cool ecosystem that's planting, but underwater. So they reached out to a lot of local organizations and scientists to see how to get that ball rolling. And there's this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful organization called Force Blue. And it's special app veterans that have served in, you know, served our country and now want to continue to give back in a different way. So they're all really, really skilled divers and they came together to help the scientists pull off a hundred yards of hope. So the hundred yards of hope is was at first um, just a hundred corals that we were putting out for the Miami Super Bowl at the site that I just told, told you about with all these great partners. Uh, and then it continued. So then we had this Super Bowl this past year in Tampa. So Florida again, uh, and it created this like synergy because, you know, we all, everyone in Florida and in the whole country are relying on Florida's coral reef. And Tampa has the Florida Aquarium, which are growing corals to then be outplanted um, at our site. So it's just kind of a hop, you know, right around to, to the other side of Florida, but it's all connected and in purpose perfect for this. Uh, I mean, location. you know, it's true what they say, what you do on one side of the world affects the other side. And like, we're obviously seeing that. And that is kind of cool that, you know, the two Super Bowls back to back were two coastal South Florida locations or Florida locations, I should say, 
Um, and it was cool that you guys were able to, uh, to do that both, uh, two years in a row. Yeah. And, and then we just kept going. So force blue, um, made a documentary on hundred guards of hope and the, the progress. And that was, that premiered at the NFL draft, uh, on the other side of the country. So it's, we keep, we're keeping it going. We're going to hold on to the Super Bowl stuff as long as we can, you know, while it's alive, just keep it going. I mean, I exactly. think great. Um, so you, I know you mentioned a little bit about like spawning the sea urchin in the lab and then releasing them. How exactly does that work? Cause I find that very fascinating. Yeah, so I wouldn't say that I'm the best expert on this, but um, Florida Aquarium has been working really hard on um, spawning them in in the lab, and then they're bringing them over to us to to raise. Uh, but it's it's been studied for a really long time. So in nature, there are subtle cues that tell urchins when they should spawn. Um, but in the labs, we've had to kind of like recreate that in the lab, right? right. So we found that there's a few degrees of temperature um, warmer. So if we just make the temperature a little bit warmer, it can induce the spawning. But then we have to, once it spawns, it's not just like, okay, now you have, you have diadema, <laughs> right? They have to be, they have to fertilize the eggs. Um, and they're really, really sensitive to water movement and quality and food and things in the water that they're so tiny um, that could really affect them and that's been kind of their biggest roadblock as they're growing um, to once they get to the developmental stage even their little spines are really sensitive so the process takes between like 30 and 45 days um, and once they finally settle so they're not drifting around in the water anymore um, there's less than one millimeter so super tiny um, and they need a really good protective habitat and algae to continue to eat and grow um, and it'll probably be about a year between before they reach just like a stable size suitable for release oh, wow so so it's not just an overnight process. I mean, there's a lot of time put into this. Yeah, like like I said, I, I wouldn't consider, my, I'm learning a lot, this year a lot about diadema and I just see these tiny, tiny, tiny little things. I'm like, how do you survive it all in the wild? I don't know. Well, I know, <laughs> you know, you hear about like just different things like external factors that affect the environment and the ecosystem um, or the reef specifically. Just so for example, um, a few years ago when they moved, you know, Ultra Music Festival, Mm -hmm. Key Biscayne and, you know, many were, were concerned that it was going to just kind of disrupt the whole uh, balance of, of the ecosystem, like, you know, in the water and it's just been all ongoing back and forth. But um, what do you think exactly? I, you know, I read that they were wiped out um, back like in the 1980s. Um, is it one specific um, event or something that happened that wiped them out or, or was it just something climate change and just an ongoing issue? So it's not 100% certain. Um, but yeah, in 1983, um, most scientists believe it was a pathogen that came through the Panama Canal, mm. uh, but it wiped out like 95 or more percent of the urchins throughout Florida and the, and the Car Caribbean. So it's not just here that we saw this problem. Um, and they really need a dense population to spawn and to grow, you know, fertilize and, and continue to grow. So with this wipeout, a lot of them were more sparse and, and farther away and populations were, you know, depleted. So it's, it's been ha hard for them to um, bring their population back. And in fact, they really haven't brought it all the way back. Um, there's some spaces that we've seen on the reef where we see more than others. And that's kind of why we're trying to introduce them to hundred yards of hope and some of our other restoration sites, because uh, the more that they, that are there in, in one spot, the faster the population can grow. Cause the more often that they will, um, they'll continue to spawn. 
Now, do you think that there, um, or do you guys know, I guess I should say, if there's anything um, in Florida, like the public should or shouldn't do in order to help kind of speed this up for them, or is just something, a process that they need to just do on their own with kind of a little push from, uh, from what you guys are doing? Yeah, I mean, right now, the best thing that I think anyone can do with with a lot of threats that, you know, the environment faces, but specifically urchins is just spread the word. You know, like I said, I've been in this field for years. I've always wanted to be involved with marine science and marine conservation. And I'm just (laughs) diving into urchin issues and, and about urchins this year. So I think a lot of people don't really know about that. And so getting that information out. So these, you know, this podcast and then talking about it with friends and family. And then we hope down the line, we'll be able to have, you know, volunteers and citizen scientists that are out on the reefs report sightings and join along in the restoration efforts. That's our goal because we we really value community um, involvement at Frost Science. So, and they can also support organizations that are working on on diadema restoration or coral reef restoration or whatever, uh, you know, environmental (laughs) issue that they want to tackle. Um, You can come (laughs) to Frost Science if you are in the area. Feel free to come and visit them. We have baby urchins uh, in our our public lab. Come talk to me and, you know, just, you know, get involved and, and get the word out. You mentioned um, just like other helping hands um, in this whole project. How many hands do you have on deck right now working on this? Uh, project or is it just so many like across the country right now you just don't even have a handle on how many (laughs) (laughs) I have a pretty good handle so like like I said um I mean at least for our group I'm sure that there are a lot of researchers out there across the whole world that are looking at stuff like this but um the southeast florida coral reef restoration hub is us frost science we have the university of miami um we have nova southeasterns we have secor international and then like you said the Florida Aquarium, the University of Florida, uh, and then of course, Florist Blue being able to be like a hands-on team with us. Uh, so it's it takes a lot. So over at Florida Aquarium, we have the University of Florida spawning the urchins and they're bringing them to us to raise. And then Secor is bringing, um, you know, coral larvae into the lab and we're gonna see how the diadema and the coral grow together. So it's just a really, really, really unique and special huge group of everyone with their special abilities to work together. I just, it's really special. I just really love being a part of it. Oh, I am. I can, I can definitely tell you <laughs> about it. It's really cool. And then hopefully that documentary you mentioned will also kind of get the word out, you know, so people mm-hmm. can, can kind of just help you guys out as any sightings that they may see. You know, we, I, I, as I said before, I, I sense your enthusiasm and it's so cool to like really talk to you about and see how like the passion in this, in this project, what exactly is your team and you, you know, all of you hoping to, hoping for at the end of this? I mean, is there an end to this or is this just going to be an ongoing uh, project? That's a good question. I know, you know, me personally, I hope to continue to work on um, restoration in general with a holistic approach and, and not just focus on one little, you know, thing like just these corals need to be outplanted, right? I love how we have a bunch of different organizations coming together with a bunch of different species that we're putting out there. And I think if this approach is replicated with more and more uh, scientists and and passionate individuals that have other special niches, like for example, somebody who wants to study water quality and knows how uh, Biscayne Bay is suffering, the water quality of Biscayne Bay is suffering, Mm -hmm. if they wanted to come in and get involved as well and and say, hey, you know, the diadema will do better if we do X, Y, and Z, um, you know, issues with changing acidity and, and changing temperatures. I think 
we have to look at it as a, as a big picture. And I think we're on our way to do that. And so my hope is that if we continue to do that, the Florida's coral reef and reefs around the world uh, will be able to bounce back. And um, a lot of the fears that scientists have about how they're, you know, not going on a great path will start to be relieved. And so that we have them here for future generations. Another one that I have I'm really, really passionate about getting people involved and education, the educational aspect to uh, environmentalism. And so hope, my hope is that more people start to learn about the issues and feel an ownership to, you know, to their environment and where, whatever that looks like for them, just caring and loving, you know, the, the planet. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, something you just mentioned kind of made me think of something else I wanted to ask you, um, you know, in the whole spawning portion of this project. Um, I know you said you weren't too familiar with it, but I know you mentioned it was um, a very controlled environment before everything's released, before they're released into the wild. I mean, do you think that climate change could kind of affect or kind of slow down their process of being released just because things are ever changing? It's not as controlled as they would be in the lab. Yeah, I mean, I I don't, again, I don't know, but my guess is yes, because climate change is having an issue with like pretty much everything. everything. So um, I'm going to go ahead and say yes uh, to that, just because I know it is affecting the corals and the different aspects to, to how corals grow and how they get stressed. Um, and so if the corals are going to get affected by it, then the animals that rely on them will as well. So whether or not it will affect are how we release them and when we release them, I'm not sure, but I do know that that's part of the conversations that need to be had and are being had. Of what is it going to look like down the line? What is restoration in general going to look down the, like down the line? And what is what we're putting out there right now going to look like? And there's a lot of cool stuff going on with looking at genetics and only outplanting different species and, and genetics, very a variance that um, are more resilient to different changes like heat and light. So that stuff is definitely important. It's, it's such a pleasure and it's so enjoyable to be able to interview someone that has so much passion and enthusiasm for what they're doing and, and just by your voice and just to have the way you're explaining everything, I can really see like the passion and enthusiasm and we want to thank you obviously from our weather team for everything that you guys do at Frost and, and in your project and, and I just hope that those little, those little sea urchins come out and we'll be able to see more of them all across Florida in our waters. Me too, because like I said, I'm new to this, but I never thought I would think an urchin was cute, but we have <laughs> these little things in, in our lab. I'm like, oh my God, this spiky little circle is so cute. <laughs> so I am passionate and I hope everyone else can learn to love the little urchin. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll spread the word with your podcast. And of course, also we'll, we'll talk about that documentary a little bit more. Thank you again Thanks. for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. Special seven weather thank you to our friends at the Philip and Patricia Frost Museum of Science for taking the time to talk with us. For more information on the Coral Reef Restoration Project or on the Sea Urchin Restoration Mission at the Frost Science Museum, feel free to visit www.frostscience.org. From the seven weather team, this is meteorologist Erica Delgado on Weather or Not. Thanks, Erica. 2020 brought us a deadly pandemic. Coronavirus infections in India and Pakistan. A record-setting hurricane season. And a huge Saharan dust storm known as Godzilla. It was the largest dust cloud on record. It began to grow out of the west coast of Africa around this week last year. And in a few days, 
it had swallowed the Caribbean. The Saharan dust currently affecting Barbados will continue to do so for at least another week. Dust That's blowing the all the way from the Sahara Desert in West Africa. The dust reached an altitude of 22,000 feet. That's higher than North America's tallest mountain, Denali, in Alaska. Eventually, the dust reached the Gulf Coast of the U.S. by the end of the month. This enormous dust cloud kept the tropics quiet for a short period of time, but it came at a price. It carried 70% more dust than your typical plume, turning the skies a hazy dark brown from Puerto Rico through the Virgin Islands and as far west as Cuba. At times, visibility was less than three miles. Very poor conditions. Godzilla not only impacted the air, but it was also a health hazard. If inhaled, those small dust particles could cause disease. It was the largest and densest Saharan dust cloud ever reported and lasted for almost two weeks. Saharan dust is very typical between late spring and early fall. About once or twice a week, a huge plume of dust rises high in the sky and gets pushed west by upper-level winds. The dust travels clear across the Atlantic impacting areas as far away as the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean, and South America. The dust can be very beneficial as it can provide much-needed nutrients to the soil across the Amazon River Basin. What caused Godzilla to form? The conditions that led to this huge dust storm are diverse. Experts attribute the emergence of Godzilla on reduced sea ice, warmer ocean temperatures, and unusual wind patterns by the west coast of Africa. In June of 2020, the jet stream, which is a river of very strong wind in the upper levels of the atmosphere, trapped a high-pressure system over North Africa. For four days, the high blew across the Saharan Desert, pumping huge amounts of dust into the sky. This happened at the same time that ice sheets across the Arctic were at an all-time low. Scientists believe that this could have led to Arctic winds traveling farther south than normal, disrupting regular wind patterns across West Africa. Warm ocean temperatures could have played a part in creating Godzilla as well. As the warm air above the water rose, it kept the dust particles afloat much longer, allowing it to travel across the ocean. Will we see another Godzilla in the future? Hotter temperatures, drier conditions, and reduced vegetation in Africa could produce more dust particles. But these events are difficult to forecast. Coming up next week, it's the start of summer. What can we expect? Plus, Florida, no longer the lightning capital of the world. Florida has long been known as the lightning capital of the U.S., but recent data suggests that's no longer the case. That's all next week on Weather or Not. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pfarrow at wsvn.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. It will make my boss very happy. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7Weather and, of course, live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about Weather or Not. We need all the listeners we can get. The next issue of Weather or Not drops June 15th. 
Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.